Hello, and welcome to The Consumer VC. I am your host, Mike Gelb, and on this show, we talk about the world of venture capital and innovation in both consumer technology and consumer products. If you're enjoying this content, you could subscribe to my newsletter, theconsumervc.substack.com, to get each new episode and more consumer news delivered straight to your inbox. My guest today is Andrew Dudem, founder of Hims and Hers. Hims and Hers is a telehealth company that sells personal care products, subscription, and over-the-counter drugs online. We discuss the current healthcare system, what customer transparency really means, and what led him to take his company public via SPAC. Without further ado, here's Andrew. Andrew, thank you so much for joining me today. How are you? I'm doing great. Thank you so much for having me. I'm excited to be on. Oh, it's an absolute pleasure. Absolute pleasure. So if you don't mind, walk us through a little bit of what was your attraction to entrepreneurship? You know, I've been building things probably since I can remember. You know, when I was a kid, I had parents and grandparents and uncles and aunts that, you know, really were immigrants and entrepreneurs in their own right. They had started businesses, laundromats, liquor stores, legal firms, real estate companies, and all did from nothing and, and were really their own boss. So I think it was really just in my DNA to approach business with kind of that independence and, and that entrepreneurial perspective. You know, tactically was when I went to college, I was out in Philly undergrad at, at Wharton. You know, I realized really quickly, I just really wasn't excited and passionate about the more linear and, you know, common trajectories. You know, I wasn't super passionate about finance and banking and, you know, going and working at Goldman or a hedge fund just wasn't really that interesting to me. And that was really what my, my peers were, were really focused on. So I started thinking about what I could do and what I was excited about. And, and ultimately, what I found myself doing was hanging out outside you know, the engineering school and trying to convince people to build things with me and coming up with new ideas and testing them. And, and I think I just very naturally gravitated towards this you know, blend of quantitative business mind and creative consumer orientation and blending those together to, to build companies. And so I think, you know, there, there was a little bit of, of nurture there in, in the family that I grew up in and kind of how they approached business. And then just a lot of instinct around, you know, my passion to build and a fairly nonlinear career path. I love that. I mean, it seems like as well, just how you're combining maybe different elements and, and different schools at Wharton there or UPenn kind of seems that you well maybe have like that generalist mentality as well and not so much being specialized in terms of one different field that is pretty critical of being a successful entrepreneur. What was the insider aha moment that led you to found at the time HIMS? I think with all you know great businesses, the, the founder usually has a pretty tight emotional understanding of the consumer, right? And an emotional resonance with the problem and why it needs to be fixed and improved and how many people it's going to help and really be passionate about that because for better or worse, building a company is really freaking hard, right? And it takes 10, 15, 20 years to do successfully. And so at the core, you need to be really passionate about it. And I think for me, Hims and Hers was just this really amazing intersection of a brand and a spirit and the authenticity around you know, encouraging people to be their best self. And when I was a teenager, you know, I had sisters that pushed me to 
you know, get a haircut and, and use moisturizer and make sure I was sleeping enough because I would look tired the next day. And if I had acne, they would drive me to the dermatologists. You know, I, I just had this kind of team around me that was helping me feel good and encouraging me to be well and take kind of control and being able to bottle that up into a company was just really powerful and ultimately give people that motivation and direct access to great products that make them feel better. I think, you know, that was a really big part of it. And then I also think with Ims and Ernst, there was just this really unique blending of societal factors, technology factors, and regulatory factors that made it a fairly rare opportunity. You had business in healthcare that really hasn't changed in 50 or 60 years, right? Every time we go to the doctor, we schedule an appointment, that whole experience hasn't really changed, right? It hasn't been modernized with technology where we can pick up our phone, click a button, and get access just like we can in food and real estate and clothing and on-demand transportation, everything. So being able to modernize the healthcare industry, to digitize it, to bring price transparency, to make it mobile-friendly, digital-first, you know, all of that was really exciting to me as an entrepreneur. And then you layer that on this regulatory dynamic where for the first time, things like telemedicine were allowed, right? States were passing laws, allowing you to see a doctor online, allowing you to video chat, use messaging, text message, photos, videos, letting people from the comfort of their home talk to their specialists and get prescriptions delivered to their door. It was really all of those factors, I think, combined that made this opportunity one that not only had an emotional resonance with me, but one that I knew could affect hundreds of millions of people in the country and had a unique timing dynamic that really wasn't something you could have built five and six years ago. It really had this like structural change in the market that meant now was the time to go and get this opportunity. No, I think those are all really important elements. And I also appreciate you breaking it down to maybe the multifaceted approach that you kind of designed Hims and Hers is extremely impressive. I love to start actually where you started when you think about authenticity. For founders that are listening, how do you think about the word authenticity? Because I've had investors on the show that that's part of their you know process when they're thinking about what companies to invest in and also kind of analyzing founders. But I love to learn kind of how from your perspective, what does that word kind of mean to you? You know, I think it means that it comes from a place of purity, right? That like this person this brand um, has a North Star that is honest and is real. And it's like, in, in a lot of ways, a cornerstone of who that person is. And it's a reflection of that person. And I've said this before, I really believe this. You know, it's never been easier to build a company. And for that reason, it's never been harder to build a brand, right? There are so many companies out there, so many products that are getting launched left and right, left and right. But because of that, it's so hard to really stand out as a brand that has an opinion and stands for something and makes people feel a certain way. And I think with Hims and Hers, it was really pure to me and our founding team, which was, we're going to invigorate people to get off their butts and take care of themselves. And we're going to use humor and it's going to be irreverent and it's going to be funny and it's going to be fun and beautiful and smell good and taste good. And all of those things are not things you would think about when talking about healthcare. And for us, that's a really important thing we're going to focus on because how you make people feel when it comes to their health and wellness is really what's going to determine whether or not they come back to you and they love you as a business and they stay loyal to you as a business. And so I think that authenticity is like a purity of and a cornerstone of the team 
what they believe, and then it's manifestation in the actual voice of the brand. I'm really glad that you brought up brand building. I think that's really well said and that it's never easier to start a company, but it's never harder to build a brand. Because I guess going back to the first, it's so easy to start a company, right? right? And it's so cheap to start a company. How do you think about building a brand and building this sense of community? And I know that community is a word that's thrown around a lot these days. But, you know, people don't really want to talk about or are uncomfortable talking about it, like hair loss or erectile dysfunction. How do you think about, you know, hims and hers being kind of a safe place for customers and kind of think about that as it relates to your brand? I think that's a really important part of the brand, right? It's, it's a place that I think acknowledges for people that they have been struggling with something for a long time. And I think that's actually maybe one of the first things we realized was, by the time somebody comes to him's or hers, they've been thinking about this issue for months, if not years, right? They've been waking up, looking in the mirror, you know, frustrated, anxious, depressed, sad, all of these emotions of guilt, et cetera. Why are they experiencing it? So by the time they actually show up to our door, they've actually taken a huge step, right? They've actually overcome a huge amount of mental block to go and say, you know what, I'm going to go take a look at how I can fix this. And so by being that safe place, by being that trusted place, by being a community of people that are all taking care of things and doing it together and being a a place that's backed by science, but it's also not scary, it's normalizing. Like all of that is really self-reinforcing to the business and the brand. And I think this is at the end of the day, what people really remember, right? Like If you're scared, if you're 21 and you're losing your hair, which by the way, like 30% of men in their early 20s are losing their hair. So it's a really scary thing when you just graduate from college, you're trying to build your relationships, maybe find a spouse, trying to build your career, and all of a sudden losing your hair, right? It's like this terrible time. If you can have a community of people that tell you that that's normal, which it is, and then say, you don't have to be ashamed. Here's how we're going to fix it. Here are the options. We're going to walk you through it the whole way. It's going to be incredibly affordable. We got your back. That makes you feel great. And I think that's really what healthcare, in my mind, needs to to look and feel like. And I think that's really what we're trying to build with hims and hers. I think that's a great point. I guess maybe part of how you also get the customer to engage or talk about it or just really just kind of understand is that this is not just a problem for them. I think you said 30% of men in the early 20s start to exhibit hair loss. And so it's a pretty common problem, right? Like 30% is a huge chunk. So I think being able to kind of be understanding and comfortable that, hey, this is actually not just you. You're not the rarity here or the outlier. This is actually a pretty normal problem. I understand how that could certainly be helpful uh, to someone and get them to engage. We as humans, I think, instinctively believe we're all different, right? We're all unique. We're all like special snowflakes. And the reality is most men and most women worry about the same things. And statistically, we also struggle from the same things, right? We focused our business on things like acne, dermatology, hair loss, hair care, sexual wellness, STDs, anxiety and depression, not because you know they were the things that we thought were the coolest or the things we wanted to solve for ourselves, but statistically because huge portions of the population are struggling from those things. You know, half of the population in some situations. So I think that's a really core part of the business and the brand is normalizing that fact that we're all going through the same stuff. And because of that, it means you have nothing to be ashamed of. You have nothing to be worried about. 
you know, you can kind of like crack a joke at it, but you know that half of your buddies are also worried about it too. And so it really encourages people, I think, to take action and actually go and solve the issue once they get to that point where they realize it's actually really not that unique. That's another great point. I totally can see that in terms of everyone thinks you're unique and in a lot of different ways they are. But in terms of these types of situations or issues that we're actually all not too different, right? We're all kind of experiencing this or parts of these things. When you're originally founding, you know, hims and hers, what categories did you start with? Because I mean, as you mentioned, you're in a variety of categories. And how did you think about maybe product or category extension in the early days? Yeah, you know, with Hims and Hers, the vision has always been to build a business that can represent the future of the healthcare system. You know, to build a brand, to build the technology, the experience, the clinical excellence that in 5, 10, 20 years from now, it can be the platform where a huge portion or majority of the country is starting their healthcare experience through Hims and Hers. So, in order to do that, there's been this very intentional strategy to go focus on the young demographic. If you want to build the healthcare system of the future, you're probably not you know, going to do that by focusing on people in their 60s and 70s, right? Because their expectations of technology, their expectations of consumer brands are wildly different from those in their 20s and 30s. And those in their 20s and 30s, 10 and 20 years from now, are going to be the people spending the most in healthcare. So there was this real intentionality around building for the future, you know, skating to where the puck is going, so to speak. And so with that in mind, we just got to know, you know, our customer really well. That person who's a teenager, 20-year-old, 30-year-old, you know, graduating college, getting their life set up, both men and women, what are they worried about? What are they thinking about? And again, the categories that pop up, you know, were things like dermatology, and sexual health and anxiety and depression. You know, those were things that were really, really common. And so that's where we started. You know, the company is just three years old and now we we offer a whole range of different products and services. But where we really start always is who is this young customer? What are they worried about most? How can we help them with that thing? And then expand from there. And I think that's how we thought about it in the early days. And that's still how we think about it today. Did you ever get pushback from investors saying, hey, you have to stick in one category? If we look at you know strategics and what they look for in terms of buying businesses that they're focused really on companies that can really dominate in a particular category rather than, than you all, which seem to seem to dominate in a lot of categories. I mean, I can't believe you're only three years old. It's pretty amazing. But I'm just kind of curious because on a previous episode, I did talk to a founder and that was one of his main trouble maybe of getting investors over the hump. Investors wanting him to focus on one category instead of being cross category. With our business, you know, we have those conversations all the time, but I think there was always, you know, this conversation that took place on day zero and with every investor I brought on that I have no interest in building a business for dermatology. And I have no interest in building a company for hair loss or no interest in building a brand for sexual dysfunction. Zero, not at all. Like those are not interesting companies to me at all. Now, can you make money building businesses in each of them and focusing on them? For sure. But I think the real opportunity is the fact that in the next 20 years, the entire healthcare system is going to change. You know, people are going to go digital first. All these people are going to be picking up their phone, engaging with the doctor. They're not going to be waiting three weeks and waiting in, in the line. And so if that's the insight, Building a brand around one single condition is a total mistake. 
Now, it's much safer, right? As you said, strategics will gobble up that hair brand or gobble up that razor company, whatever it is, right? It's like, if you want an exit and you want to make money, that's probably the safer route to do it on like a risk cost basis. Now, I think I, for the last 15 years, have been building companies. I've had you know, the blessing to, to found a lot of them. Um, and I've also had a lot of friends that were building Warby and Harry's and all of these different companies at the time. And what I saw was brands and businesses that sell one thing have a very material cap to what the potential can be for that company, especially if you're talking about a commoditized product. You know, inevitably at 100 million in revenue or maybe 200 million in revenue, it starts to flatline pretty dramatically. There are only so many people who are willing to spend for that really you know, awesome pair of sunglasses or that great set of dog food or that great you know, jacket or whatever it is. And so I took the approach that said, from the beginning, we're going to get excellent at building multiple companies simultaneously. And that's going to be our DNA. And that's what's going to make us better than everybody else. And that's going to allow us to compound and stack diverse sets of revenue on top of itself, all underneath this Hims and Hers healthcare brand that you're building equity in the whole time. And that's how you build a 20 or $40 billion public company, not by focusing on hair loss and not by focusing on just skin. Our bet was by far the scarier bet, right? And I think investors from the beginning knew that that was what I was going after. They knew that's all I cared about. And they got on board for that ride. But I think a lot of people, as you said, would say that was crazy. And you should do one thing and you should do it really, really well. And that's all you should do. And I think at you know, this point in my career, when I was starting this business, I wanted to go bigger. You know, the, I thought we had the potential to build something really transformative. And when you have a business that has 10 different revenue streams from 10 different customers selling 10 totally different services, that's a really badass business. That's a very protected, safe, compounding business. And that's what I wanted to go after. That's awesome. What is interesting too about your experience fundraising is that the investors that came on board and actually had no interest in these individual categories. Maybe the interest is that uh, hymns and herds and what you were building was really flipping the healthcare system um, over, right? The opportunity was actually being cross-category and being all-encompassing. That's right. I find that quite fascinating. How did you approach from the very beginning as well, hiring and building your team, going back to the early days? The early days were just, <laughs> felt like yesterday. Amazing. And I think the reason the early days were just three years ago and, you know, the company just last month or two months ago in public was because of how we hired, right? And because of the steps we took on the on the team side of the house. And the strategy there, again, given the vision that we were talking about of this multi-dimensional business, compounding revenue, building five, six companies simultaneously all underneath one you know, consumer brand umbrella, you need really, really good talent to do that. You know, you need very senior talent. And so what we did was um, decide to keep the team very small. It's still very small. The company is just 150, 200 people, and it's a public company. To keep it very high horsepower, which means like everybody in the business has to be smarter than Andrew at what they do, right? It's like really simple. If, if I'm better at your job than you, you can't join the company. So everybody we've hired has progressively made the organization smarter. And, and that's hard to do. Usually it's 
you know, as you scale, you, you have to bring in just different talent and in a lot of ways dilute the talent intelligent level across the whole organization. And I think we just said, we're going to hire the best people no matter what. And then also we're going to hire people that have done it before. So just 90 days after our launch, we hired a COO. Um, and that COO, Melissa Baird, is our COO today of a public company. So she scaled over three years. And she had built Zulily and she had built Bonobos. She had you know, 15, 20 years of experience doing exactly that role. And so we brought her in to do what she's great at. And we brought in people like Dr. Patrick Carroll, who was the chief medical officer of Walgreens. Right? We brought him in as our chief medical officer. Um, and we brought in you know, people like Soleil, our chief legal officer, who ran you know, the whole legal practice when it comes to telemedicine and one of the, lead, the leading firms in the country. So we just had this philosophy of we're going to hire very few people, but they're going to be excellent. They're going to know how to do their job and more because the opportunity we're going after is going to stretch everybody to their limits. And we're not going to be able to afford people to learn on the job. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. In the early days as well, what was your approach to fundraising? You know, I think my approach to fundraising is two things. One, always make sure you have money in the bank, right? I think, you know, number one job as a CEO is don't run out of money. So you know, keep the business financed. And then second, bring the right people into the organization. You know, the people that either have strategic insights, that have really deep pockets, because you know you're going to have to build for the future, that have consumer brand expertise, that have medical expertise, that have all types of different specialties that you're struggling with. You know, use the board and use the investors as a way to complement yourself as an entrepreneur to be better, right? So if you've identified that you're great at marketing, but you know nothing about technology operations or fulfillment, for example, and you're meeting with you know teams, it might behoove you to bring on some board members that are really skilled in those things to help you build out leadership functions there and make sure you're going in the right direction. So I use the board and the investors similar to how I've built out my executive team, which is to help complement you know mine and the org's weaknesses so that we really can fill those gaps, frankly, as quickly as possible. So you know, I think a lot of people at this point, you know, wonder how valuable are different investors? Is it just money? And I'll say that, you know, the people we brought into our company, the investors we brought into our company are incredibly valuable and they continue to be incredibly valuable to this day as a public company. And so you can extract real value by who you pick. Um, and so being thoughtful about the areas of improvement, you know, you want to focus on in your company is important, you know, self-reflection before going out and fundraising because it can help you through who the right teams could be. That makes a lot of sense. Why did you decide initially to fundraise? And how long after you started the business did you realize, okay, I think we need to fundraise here? We were pretty unique in that we have fundraised pretty much every 90 days for the last three years straight. It really you know, hasn't stopped. We've raised half a billion dollars you know, in the last 36 months. Mm -hmm. And it wasn't in one big tranche. It was, you know, we launched the business and 60 days after launch, we did a $20 million, you know, series A. And then, you know, 90 days later or hundred days later, we did, you know, another 25 or 50. And then three, six months after that, we did another hundred, you know, I mean, it was quite literally by the time the docs were inked for each of the fundraising rounds, I was out working on raising capital for the next round at the next price. 
And it was just because the business was growing. It was growing really quickly. It was compounding. It's a subscription business. You know, 90% of the revenue is recurring. And so it, it grows and compounds on itself. And I think the story was really resonating with people. And so we were leveraging that momentum to raise capital and invest in growth. And so, you know, I think for me, almost immediately upon launch, we knew that we had to start fundraising because the business was growing. I mean, we were getting hundreds of people a day signing up and we were prepared for probably five to 10 people a day, right? So we had to rebuild everything. We had to hire, we had one doctor, we had one customer support rep, you know, our pharmacy was falling over, our fulfillment center was falling over. We got a call of launch saying from our fulfillment team that they couldn't ship boxes for like three weeks. It was, you know, a movie could be made out of the chaos, right? And so we knew we needed capital to hire the right people and rebuild a lot of the infrastructure to, to manage the scale. That also makes a lot of sense. I mean, it's always an amazing position to have that much demand, of course, but at the same time, you also need to make sure you're able to fulfill and also have the supply to match that demand. So it makes sense you're able to fundraise. How do you think about this idea of profitability versus growth? I know like, you know, a few years ago, it seemed like a lot of people were talking about optimizing or maybe over-indexing on growth. Now there seems to be a lot more talks about making sure you're profitable or gaining a profitability. And especially on the investor side, I've seen this change. How do you think about these kind of two different levers or two different aspects of a business? It's a sensitive balance and public opinion changes pretty much like the wind is the reality. I get these emails from banks and New York Stock Exchange every day telling me about investor sentiment and you know, where is money flowing from one place to the other and how that could be a reason why the stock went up 10% or why it went down 10% or God knows, right? It always sounds something like today investors were, were really excited more on the, you know, to get more into the value stock. So they moved money into value and it literally changes every day and every week. And so it's a balance that you have to ride really carefully. I think that was one of the reasons, you know, to be honest, that I decided to take the business public so quickly is I think by being a public company, you are forced to learn how to both tell a very large big vision story, which we have with him's and hers, also deliver on your numbers, also invest in future growth, and make sure your efficiency is improving, right? You, you are actually forced to have to do it all, grow and get to profitability. And I think that's honestly the answer no one wants to say is the right route, but that is the answer, right? You have to keep growing. You have to figure out how to keep growing. And you also need to prove to the street that you're not just lighting money on fire, right? Like you're, you're actually making incremental dollar and the unit economics make sound sense. So for us, we are not profitable today. But if anyone looks at our financials, they would see that if we wanted to be profitable, we absolutely could be, right? You could like pull that lever and we could be profitable if we wanted. Now, does it make sense to be profitable? Absolutely not. The market's growing so quickly. There's so much place to deploy capital to grow. The investments we're making in growth are all profitable ROI, positive investments. So you want you know, want to invest into that. But I think balance is showing in your financials and showing to your investors that you know the levers necessary to get to profitability and that you can consistently pull one of them every quarter or a couple of them every year so that you're getting closer and closer and closer and showing the path towards it while also figuring out how to grow and scale the business. I think that's a great point in terms of this balance of growth and profitability. I wanted to also discuss uh, COVID a little bit. I'd imagine that 
2020 was a pretty big year for hims and hers, given like the tailwind of e-commerce. But we'd love to kind of hear your thoughts in terms of if COVID changed anything relating to how you run your business or maybe a change in consumer behavior that you've kind of accounted for or just some of your, your general thoughts on it. You know, I think what COVID did in a lot of industries is you know, behaved kind of like a looking glass into the future, right? Like what is going to happen in 10 years? Well, instead it's going to happen next year, right? Like that's really what happened with COVID. And so, you know, wild acceleration of things like at-home streaming, wild acceleration of e-com, as you were saying, acceleration of telemedicine, on-demand everything, Instacart, food delivery. I mean, if you are used to leaving your house and waiting in line and doing something in person, and instead it can get shipped to your door, that was going to be the future. And it just happened much, much faster. So many industries were wildly accelerated by that change in behavior. And I think for us, the digital health, the telemedicine one was a huge one. You know, you had in 2019, less than 10% of the population that had ever tried telemedicine. And now coming into 2021, almost 80% of the population has used telemedicine. And they picked up their phone and they clicked the button and they got connected with a doctor or they called their doctor and the prescription showed up at their door the next day and it was awesome and easy. And none of those people are going to go wait in line, you know, to do the same thing now that they've had that experience, right? It's like such a better experience that it's going to change consumer behavior forever. And I think that happened across a lot of industries. It really just accelerated the inevitable in a very compressed amount of time that frankly, I don't think anybody could have ever imagined was possible. Totally, totally. And I know, you know, you recently went public via SPAC. I was just curious on why you decided to go public via SPAC, to be quite honest with you. Yeah, it's a great question. You know, we kind of looked at all options and all routes to go public. We first were expecting to go via traditional IPO, which was very much in the plan and how we thought about it. And I think what we started to do was just learn about direct listings and learn about SPACs and all these different modalities and just tee them up from a first principle standpoint. How did they all look side by side? And I think what we came away with was, you know, you have a lot of the same dynamics as a traditional IPO with a spec, a roadshow, you know, pricing, et cetera. But in, in a lot of situations, you're able to pull it off in four to six months instead of eight to 12 months. And, you know, having been fundraising, as, as I mentioned, you know, every 90 days for the last three years, I had seen real cost associated with my management team being distracted with fundraising. I mean, it's like the business gets worse when you're fundraising, period, right? Because you're not focused on the things that matter. And so if I could avoid my team and myself from five or six months of distraction and instead put those five or six months driving margins and testing new growth channels and improving the business, that was real dollars. Like that's real value associated. And so to me, that was a really big part of the decision. And then ultimately, I think we met you know, a phenomenal team in Oak Tree, which is led by Howard Marks, who's probably one of the best investors in history to partner with to go public and you know, leverage their expertise and their capital markets resources. And I thought that was also a really unique dynamic with the SPAC is you get to incentivize really smart people to help you succeed. Um, and I've seen that be beneficial when you bring board members on and investors on. I think going public is really no different. You have an opportunity to to leverage the expertise of others. And, and I think with the SPAC, that was a real benefit to us. That's really helpful. Thank you. Speaking of fundraising, what's one thing you would change when it came to uh, venture capital or the fundraising process? 
Oh man, there's a million things that would change. It's such a difficult process because it's dynamic of just imperfect information, right? You've got founders trying to showcase their best foot forward in everything they do. And then as a result, you have investors who are hypercritical of everything, right? They don't trust, they don't believe it, they want to see it, they want to see the data. And then you try to like meet in the middle somewhere over the course of weeks getting to know each other and see if both sides are willing to like take that jump, that there's there's a lot of imperfect dynamics there. I think, you know, one of the things that was really appreciated from my standpoint, and I think I would love to see this in the industry more, is just awesome transparency with regard to, you know, what are the things that are going really well with your business? What are the things that are really struggling with your business? And then investors being honest about the areas that they can be helpful, right? I think I, um, for many years, I've been you know building companies for probably 15 years and at this point raised probably a billion or a billion and a half across them. In the early days, you're like kind of like dog and pony show. You're like, everything's beautiful. Everything's perfect. Everything's fine. Give us money. And then they give you money and they're like, but there's also some of this other stuff that we need to work on and it's difficult. And I think as I got you know more experienced, I'd be like, here are the things that are great. Here are the things we're working on. Here are the things we haven't started yet. Definitely need improvement. And I actually noticed that investors really really appreciate that because in a lot of ways, you know, you're building trust and they're also identifying from their standpoint where they can add value and they want to add value, like truly. So I hope that there's just more transparency that happens from both sides and the stigma of perfection kind of goes away because the reality is even the best businesses, you know, even a company like Kim's that from founding to IPO in three years seems like everything was perfect. There were terrible days, right? And there were terrible weeks and being able to have real partnership and transparency with your investors was really beneficial. If there's anything I would see that could improve and maybe get better, that's one area I would love to see be a little bit more transparent. I think that's a great point about transparency. I absolutely agree. And also just understanding too, where you need help and if the investor is able to help too, if, if maybe that's the area of their expertise, how you also can lean in on that, right? Really? I had an investor that told me like one of his favorite questions to ask founders is what's gone wrong so far and what's actually not gone right. And you can actually reveal a lot about how the founder maybe um, handled that experience or a little bit there in terms of leaning in a little bit more and learning more about the company. I totally agree with you in terms of maybe on the investor side of things, not demanding perfection because especially in the early days, it's really, really tough. The one thing you know is that something is bound to go wrong. And the founders being comfortable to share that and not feel like they're being judged. What's one book that inspired you personally and one book that inspired you professionally? From a professional standpoint, I've always really been interested in the story of, of Pixar because it's an organization that's you know systematically built just number one hits over and over and over again. And if you think about hims and hers, right, and that that orientation of launching new categories and new business lines and having them all succeed, there's a lot of similarities there. And so, you know, Creativity Inc. is a book about, you know, how they built that culture over at Pixar and the teams and the infrastructure they have in place to kind of build success in recurrence and in repeated fashions. That I think was really, really fascinating to me. On the personal side, I actually have been really deep on, you know, learning about technology and innovation around kind of the environment 
and climate change. So there's there's like a ton of technology around direct air capture. There's a ton of technology around how you could use the ocean and soil and you know reforestation, you know, all types of different things to help essentially provide time for the world to reduce their carbon footprint from just a pure uh, output standpoint. So there's a lot of books on that. There's Bill Gates just put out a new one, Avoiding a Climate Catastrophe, which is an awesome book. So I've been reading a lot of those and, and I've been pretty inspired by a lot of them. I love it. I think we had another uh, guest that also brought up Creativity Inc. and really enjoyed it. And I also love you kind of telling about, I guess, your passion and your interest in climate change and, and more about the environment. So what's the best piece of advice that you've received? Probably keep it simple, stupid, or keep it stupid, simple. It's kind of like you can say both of them. My dad gave me that advice. He kind of interpreted it a couple different ways, but the overarching sentiment is simplify whatever you're doing. Keep it really you know, straightforward. Don't get too complex. Focus on the things that matter. You know, don't be stupid by distractions and just keep it real simple. Love it. And my final question for you is, What's one piece of advice that you have for founders currently building? Launch really quickly and test really fast. Whatever you're debating, you know, whatever name you're thinking about, whatever's holding you back from launching, you know, you're stuck in the weeds on something, it probably doesn't matter. It's probably going to change as soon as you start getting real customer information. So I just encourage founders to get something in market, even if you're not proud of it. Test, test, test get real data from real customers. And that is the fastest way to iterate and improve the experience and build something that they love. And and I give that same advice to my team today, even as a large company to be moving fast and testing and iterating just because the customer will guide you. You just got to build that relationship with them to to hear what they're saying. I think that's a great piece of advice. Launch really quickly and and test really fast. So Andrew, thank you so much for coming on. This has been a lot of fun chatting. Thank you for having me. It's been great. And there you have it. It was such a pleasure chatting with Andrew. I hope you enjoyed it as much as I did. You can follow him on Twitter at Andrew Dudem. I'd love it if you'd write a review on the Apple Podcasts. You're also welcome to follow me, your host, Mike, on Twitter at Mike Gelb, and also follow for episode announcements at ConsumerVC. Thanks for listening, everyone. 